welcome to Adaptivist Live, the Atlassian Ecosystem Podcast. Today's episode is entitled, My Mech Was Built with Atlassian. I'm Ryan Spilkin, and as always, my co-host and strategy guide navigator, Matthew Stubblefield. Hi, Matthew. A pleasure to be joining you for Adaptivist at Night. Yeah, this is the latest session we've ever recorded and um, possibly one of the most fun ones we'll ever get to do. I mean, our, our listeners, they're listening to this any time of the day. You guys don't have to listen at night. No, you really. don't. But if, you, if you're if you at night, that's okay. If it's during the day, don't pause. It's it fine. It enhances the vibe. It would enhance the vibe if you waited, though. Yeah, just wait. Is it? Is it? Okay, are you ready? Is it night now? Is it? Do you have candles? Let's Get go. Candles out. It'll be great. So we're going to have a lot of fun today because we have an extremely special guest, and that is Ryan Burl, a game designer at Harebrained Schemes, a publisher who is famous for such gaming hits as Shadowrun Hong Kong and BattleTech. Uh, Ryan is also one heck of a settler on the mythical island of Catan as well. Welcome, Ryan. Hey. Hello. Hello. How are you on the, the east and then the middle coast that doesn't have coasts? <laughs> um, we're, I'm great. The east coast, uh, northeast coast uh, summer is about setting in. And that mm-hmm. honeyed end of spring is just delightful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just uh, we're, we're kind of experiencing the same thing, given that we were both comparatively new to our regions. Yep. You know? yep. So it, it is true. Yep. The, the uh the the cold northwestern winter has finally broken and those yeah. summer afternoon days have started to to look um on the horizon so a beautiful time matthew how's the the midwest coast uh the mid coast the mid coast is doing all right been a been a little uh a little wet a little rainy uh we we don't keep our our coast is not because of the ocean which is very far away it's all above us and, and dumping on us constantly. So uh, it's I was going to uh, say the endless flooding is the endless coast. flooding has been, um, yeah, has been, you know, fun. Uh, that's a good word for it. So speaking of which, if there's no better way to speaking of endless flooding. Yeah. Speaking of endless flooding. Let's, <laughs> let's do a Thunderbolt round. So the Thunderbolt round, Ryan, we go one minute a piece on okay. the topic of the day and Today's topic is going to be your favorite gaming experience slash memory. So I go first. Mm. My favorite is being 10 years old, turning 10 years old and waking up to the new hotness, Super Mario Brothers 3, under my pillow. Okay, I was worried for a second this was like a, a coming of age, like no, no, becoming no. a man story. So. <laughs> no, okay. I mean, like, it's not Leisure Suit Larry. Sure. Yeah, he's very good. <laughs> nice, nice deep cut there. Really. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know how I do. <laughs> um, it's it, no, it was Super Mario Brothers three, and dude, World Four, gigantic Koopa Troop. What else do you need to know? Right. I, here's I here's what I need the water to know. levels. Couldn't oh, deal with water. They're awful. Yeah. Here's what I need to know, Ryan. Is what did you have to leave under your pillow to get Super Mario Brothers three in the morning? <laughs> All of his teeth. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> of the rest Little of known you, fact, Ryan Spilken has dentures because, yeah. Because you're listeners and not viewers, you can't see Ryan taking his dentures out and replacing them right now. But yeah, right. with my gold spinners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Matthew, you're up. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is, this is less about a, a specific game or this genre, but I uh, recently managed to acquire a Nintendo Switch. 
uh, which which I'm enjoying tremendously. My no last, small feat in and of itself. It did require me to go to a website and place an order. So mm-hmm. in this day and age, it was quite the trial. Uh, you made it. <laughs> cross that line. Um, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. Got a nice bundle, little Mario Kart, little Zelda, uh, a little Lego game. Uh, but uh, playing the new Zelda game, here's what it is for me. It's not that game specifically. It's the incredible nostalgia of my previous Nintendo system, which was a Nintendo 64. Mm. So I haven't really had a console in a long time. And exploring the world in Breath of the Wild, just, it takes me back to, I don't remember what that was, like, you know, seventh grade for me or something. It was junior high, playing Hyrule Zelda. Field. Yeah, and yeah. just, I mean, now it's kind of sad because uh, the world's kind of like destroyed. Um, mm. But I'm seeing these locales that I experienced so long ago. Uh, and, and, you know, you, the music's different, but you get every once in a while this little snippet, this callback. Wow. And just the, the nostalgia is really strong, and I'm really enjoying that. Nice. Mr. Burl? Uh, well, I mean, given what I do, um, there's, there's so many memories. Uh, probably, yeah, probably for me, the, the biggie would be <clears throat> when I first got a copy of Command & Conquer Gold Edition, which was from a KB toy store in the bargain bin. If, if anyone remembers those KB. and yeah. And had I, I, noticed, uninst- I know exactly which KB you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one in Branson friggin' Missouri, not the one that was in the, the battlefield. Oh, not the one. Well, I did not know the specific one. Yes. Um, Branson, Missouri from the middle coast, from the middle coast. Um, and having to then uninstall enough stuff on our hundred meg hard drive Ooh. on the Packard <laughs> bell that we owned to be able to run command and conquer which was like a whopping i don't know 50 megs worth of space or something um and that kind of began my love affair with like strategy games and then i think also pc gaming as well because uh, the last console i owned for a long time was also the nintendo 64 before i made the jump too much in the heady days of yore yeah mm-hmm. oh man all right all right all right so let's talk about the real world and what's going on right now because ryan you, it sounds like game designer is a pretty incredible job. And how did you, how did you manage that one? Um, I think it's a pretty incredible job. It's definitely a thing where uh, you, you go into work and then you kind of go, I can't really believe people pay me for this um, sometimes. <clears throat> um, I kind of came to it by happenstance where I did uh, web design development for a long time out of college. And then um a friend of a friend, actually a person that uh, Matthew and I mutually knew at one point in time, um, had started up a small indie uh, game company and they were looking for someone to do contract web design work on the side. And then they landed this big um, contract job to do a Nintendo DS game. And they said, well, how do you feel about working on a video game instead of just doing contract stuff? And I was like, that would be great. So I've always wanted to do. And then just kind of went from there. Coming from the development side, what what changes in the process? Could you compare and contrast the differences between developing web and developing games? Sure. So, I mean, part of it is that with, with rare exceptions, developing games is always a highly collaborative thing. Um, you can get really, really far 
pull off an entire project by yourself doing web development. Obviously, there are bigger teams that do web development. You have to, you know, deal with that kind of thing. But it's a completely different sort of uh, paradigm. Like they're both different types of programming. You're both dealing with with design and, and more uh, the creative side of things. Um, web development also has a lot of very well documented technologies. Um, both in like when you're dealing with presentation to um, the end user, you know, you're talking about interaction paradigms, you're talking about, um, you know, preferred methods of, of doing uh, programming. You hear talk about like, you know, rest, you know, is it restful code? You know, you're dealing with well-documented APIs. Um, game development, despite all of the advances in technology and different game engines is still very much the wild west where everything is done and almost done from scratch for every project because everything is different. Like you don't, all websites function largely the same way. Um, all games are fundamentally different in most ways. Like even, you know, you have a genre, you know, you're like, well, we're going to make a shooter or we're going to make a strategy game or something like that. So you have the general trappings of it, but, but particularly where we're at right now and like the history of games, there's such this explosion of games that are being made. Like everything has to have uh Sometimes we refer to it as like a gold coin feature, which is like, what's the one gold coin that you can think of in this game that sets it apart, makes it unique. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, like to some greater or lesser degree, all games have something that's wholly unique and then wholly like undiscovered country kind of thing about them. And so um, it's just, it's just different making them than a website where you know what it has to do and how it has to function. Ryan, so this is just a question born out of curiosity. Um, you, you mentioned that there are engines and such. Uh, mm -hmm. How many engines are there? Like, <laughs> like, is it I like a V4 and a V6 and a V8? There, I know there's three, those three. There's automatic and manual. Right. Um, you know, there are different code standards mm -hmm. from HTML, CSS coding, Groovy, Java, et cetera. Sure. Um, so that exhausts our lists of the codes. Yeah, and well, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've heard of a few others, um, and I know some other very dangerous words in other languages too. I know the Konami mm -hmm. code. The Konami right. code is perhaps the most important and relevant to this conversation. But um, I've, the only one I've ever heard of is the Unreal Engine. That's something mm -hmm. that you've you've seen in websites that get away from like deep game. Sure. So what what are, what are some other engines? Can you tell us a little bit? Yeah. Um, so. There are lots of engines. Um, you probably haven't heard of many other ones because the the engines that are available for public consumption are very few. Um, and a lot of that, again, has to do with where we're at. Like, it's only been in the last five years that independent game development has really exploded and with it, like, the, the public access of game engines. So um, Unreal and Unity are probably the two biggest ones. Um, we use Unity at uh, Hairbrain Schemes. Uh, for stuff and the choice anymore is really kind of like what licensing model you prefer and what kind of feature set you like and, and that kind of thing. But the, the engines that are used on games are myriad. Um, you know, Blizzard has their own game engine that they have written for stuff. Most huge companies and big games have a custom engine that has been written by um, that studio or the publisher. Uh, I, who is it? I always get it mixed up, whether it's Call of Duty or Battlefield, but one of them uses the Frostbite engine, for instance, and that's, you know, um, developed Sounds entirely nice in-house. Yes. Um, sharp, cold, and deadly. Um, 
sort of thing. So, and, and they're all different, you know, valve is famous for the source engine source one and two, and they've exposed mm -hmm. a lot of those tools to people to use, but, um, there are tons of engines. Um, most of them are written using C sharp or C plus plus. Um, but then you can integrate any number of other languages on that. Like a lot of our game is data driven by uh, JSON definition files that get loaded into the game. Um, I am in the middle of writing a Python script to try and export a spreadsheet into JSON files to get loaded into the game at build. Um, so, I mean, you can, the, the types of stuff that you use, Python is used a lot for um, scripts, for tools and stuff, for making content that actually goes into the game. Uh, so game development is also like this crazy hodgepodge of languages and mm. approaches. And, and the thing is that a lot of times um, you have different teams that are functioning in different discrete areas, different feature sets of the game. Uh, and they may have completely different coding standards, um, particularly as the team grows in size. Um, so even independent game studios, like these indie game companies mm -hmm. where, you know, they've got money to license an engine or something it's still more than just like one person sitting and turning out a game. Like there's still likely a team of people working together. That's what I mean. That's what it sounds like anyways. Yeah. Rare, rare is it. So the only instances I can think of where you have like one person who has literally done everything for a game are the kind of tales you hear of games like Axiom Verge or um, what's another one? Space uh, Team. Space Team was uh, one that was just one guy, I think. Yeah. Uh, Dust and Elijah Tale. Uh, right. I think uh, what's what is it called right now? There's a big um, RimWorld is another big one that's out right now. Um, and these are done by one person over the course of the better part of a decade. Right. Or they're just and super basic. Well, yeah, or something like that. So most, most games uh, are a collaboration between there may be one or two people working on them full time, but a mm. lot of times you have like a contract artist, uh, contract sound are very common things as well. Um, mm. You know, normally it is a programmer slash designer um, that is lone wolfing it, but then they always have to, right. you know, contract stuff out and then, you know, so deal with integrating this, that. You've got this mix of the the full-time people that this is their day job and they're, mm -hmm. they're in every day. And then you're bringing right. in people on and off and a few hours right. here and there. So how do you keep track of all of that? Uh, poorly, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um it, it really depends. Uh, there's a number of different methods uh, that can be used. Um, so like there are various different types of task tracking tools uh, that get used. Um, so for instance, at Hairbring, um, we do a lot of stuff in spreadsheets uh, to keep track of like specific elements of content uh, with the status of content, um, things like that. But what we tend to use most often is um, all of our stuff ends up getting tracked in JIRA. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. segue into you know why i might be here um on this the only reason we actually the only reason to. yes um <laughs> we also it it depends on what it is that you're tracking uh because you know jira is obviously very good for uh bug reporting for tracking features but this is something that we have run up against that we have to kind of um create our own methodology for is that um Jira does allow like the linkage of tasks and creating subtasks and things like that for a particular ticket. Um, but a lot of times when we're trying to get something done, it's much higher level than that. Like we're like, it's not uncommon for me to make a ticket that starts with consider doing something. And it's basically a ticket mm -hmm. to have a design slash engineering meeting about here's this feature or here's this thing that we want to do. And this is like the 
the pre-task task. Like this is the what we decide we need to do, and then you'll create some tasks and put them to specific people from there. Um, so that's one way to do that. That works really well for engineers and designers. Generally, it works like garbage for artists who both think differently and then have very different types of um, workflows than what um, the more technical uh, people do. And that's not to say all game developers are technical, regardless of what kind of sub-discipline that they have. Um, but it's just kind of a different beast. So a lot of what we will use for art tracking is Trello. Um, we use Trello a lot to uh, manage the status of things. Um, the way that we work with Unity, uh, you have um, particular assets that effectively are locked. And so we need to kind of keep track of like, well, who's going through and doing the mm -hmm. art pass where they're putting the trees in right now because we don't want their work to get squashed if someone decides to come in and look at the rocks and the rivers and whatever and, uh, other parts of the terrain. So we use Trello a lot. I think we have somewhere in the neighborhood of like two dozen Trello boards floating around for various different things uh, to track different kind of areas of the game and the status of where things are. We use it for low level what is the status of this particular piece of content to high level to like we need to decide if we're going to include or cut this feature and so it is on the chopping block column in the features trello board you know um and then if we decide to keep it it goes to the this is in game feature or we go put it to like the post launch column or something like that so uh kind of all ends of the spectrum for that kind of thing for for our listeners at atlassian as a as a customer who uses both Jira and Trello, do you have an interest in seeing an integration between them? And if so, what would you like to see? Would you like to see them talk to each other more? Sure, but I don't know what that would mean. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I think I think it would be really nice, and maybe you can do this right now. Um, we have Ryan really Spilkin. Do it Ryan's, now. Well, okay. <clears throat> the I'm on royal it. you. you know. <laughs> um, it's. Uh, it would be it would be nice to be able to maybe um, to have a linkage between because because the thing that's great about Trello is it's as close as you can get to physically moving post-it notes around, which is still I think the best way to do stuff. That's how I do a lot of things um, on my own is moving stuff around as a post-it note. But but Trello is really good for visually determining quickly the status of something. And so if there were a way to, to link the visual benefit that Trello gives with the clerical benefit that Jira gives with the ability to have all these different um, you know, levels of statuses and things like that, that would be cool. I mean, I could see a Jira project opening in a Trello view and mm -hmm. that being that being an enjoyable actual user experience i guess yeah. i mean it's close with the jira agile boards but trello has a distinct simplicity to it mm -hmm. and ease of use that could be i mean that's always the balancing act when you're making uh, you know a powerful tool it's like you know jira obviously has a lot of capability but it's daunting as well because you can do so much with it and trello is very approachable yep. uh, but but invariably you're going to hit that point where it's like well man i really wish trello had all this extra stuff to it. And it's like, well, that's not really Trello anymore, you know? And then it's like, well, I wish Jira didn't have all these features. And it's like, well, it's not really Jira anymore. So. Cool. So Ryan, what would you say that you've learned over the years that has helped you manage this better and get the stuff done? So we kind of have this mantra around um, the office that is don't suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think one of the things that has been important is that if it, 
if what you're doing clearly isn't working, don't keep doing it. I mean, that sounds duh, right? You know, but um, but so I think it's it's one of those things where like, and and particularly with like the broad array of tools that like Atlassian has just as a you know baseline, like um, if 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 the way that you want to do stuff is not supported by the tools that you're using, go find that tool that, that does that. Like it's, there, there are kind of two ways that you can approach that sort of thing, which is you can either adapt to a tool, which tends to never work, um, or you find a tool that works for you. That's, you know, that's just how it rolls. And, you know, props to Jira. Uh, it is a very adaptable system. Uh, it's, it's somewhere we can modify it and we can help it fit people a lot, but sometimes you just need a checklist or sometimes you just need some cards thrown in Trello. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, you just need a post-it note and you got to use a whiteboard and that's Mm -hmm. all right. You know, use the tool Mm -hmm. that fits the job. As you put so eloquently a few episodes ago, you can't flip pancakes with a ladle. That That should really be the motto of our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You can't flip flip pancakes with a ladle. The thing that is really tricky and where agile development is incredibly important um, in in working in games is that unlike almost any other um, creative process, and particularly for most other things where you're doing software development, shipping some sort of technology thing, the stakes are almost always zero sum. Uh, because very rare is it a thing where you have the ability to just infinitely perfect something until it's good enough, whatever good enough means. Um, And then when that thing launches, it will determine whether or not you get to do that again for most studios Mm. or whether or not you go bankrupt there, particularly in the last several years, there are no half measures. So um, being able to turn on a dime um, and fix things as they come up and make things better while still trying to keep it within this very compressed timeline most of the time um, is super important for, for our curious listeners here at adaptivist late at night. Uh, where can they learn more about what you're doing at Hairbrain schemes? Uh, sure. You, there are probably two good places right now. You could go to hairbrainschemes.com. That's actually hairbrain schemes.com. Uh, or you can go to battletechgame.com to see the game that we are all currently working on. Nice hair, hair as in hair the as in rabbit, the, right? The delicious rabbit that you can cook in the rare bit, a yes, rare bit, the rare bit. That one. Oh my! It's come to this. Yep. I'm, I'm particularly excited for the mechness. We're all excited for the mechness, Matthew. So, listeners, are you enjoying this podcast? If so, please go ahead and smash that like or share button on your social media of choice. If you've got a suggestion for the podcast or even want to appear on an episode, drop us a line at learnatadaptivist.com. Once again, a big thanks to our special guest, Ryan Burrow. For Matthew Stubblefield, I'm Ryan Spilkin, and that's it for this week's edition of Adaptivist Live. See you next week. Just got to chill. Not have things on fire. Yeah, man, take it easy.